It's Tuesday, April the 20th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, and I'll be the moderator of today's show, which means that I have the privilege of introducing the stars of our show, three Hoover Institution senior fellows who we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. We begin with John Cochran. John's a distinguished economist, and he is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Our second good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He's a former presidential national security advisor, as well as the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Bill, great to see you. And our third good fellow, historian and author Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil's next book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, comes out on May the 4th. We're going to do a special episode of Goodfellows devoted to that. So save yourself the trouble of buying it now before it sells out on May the 4th. Hello, Neil, and a belated happy birthday. I hope you partied like it was 2019. Well, I, I just uh, was on the phone to my uh, older kids who are in the UK, whom I haven't seen for over a year now. And the reason I was a little late for this session was that they were wishing me a belated happy birthday. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm not going to reveal my advanced age uh, because I don't like to dwell on that. Uh, but yes, we're doomed. We are doomed as of May the 4th. Uh, and I know that uh, our guest will will be inclined to disagree with that view. Yes, and our guest today is uh, none other than Stephen Pinker, who has the good sense to join us from Cape Cod. Stephen Pinker is the Johnstone Family Professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, where he conducts research on language, cognition, and social relations. Dr. Pinker is the author of no less than 12 books. His latest bestseller, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, argues that science and reason have helped humanity achieve enormous moral and material progress, which will continue only so long as mankind doesn't give in to despair and tribal conflict. Bill Gates calls Enlightenment Now his, quote, favorite book of all time. Not that we're Bill Gates' favorite broadcast of all time, Stephen Pinker, but welcome to Goodfellows. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, a warning in advance, Dr. Pinker, uh, if it's optimism that you come to preach, you may be outnumbered on this panel. One of our good fellows is our resident optimist. The other two uh, kind of vary between grumpy and skeptical. I'll let you figure out which is which. But I'd like to begin the show by asking you this question, sir. Uh, I read a piece in the Harvard Crimson recently, the headline, An Endangered Species, The Scarcity of Harvard's Conservative Faculty. Uh, this was an account of the paper's annual survey of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. They interviewed 236 faculty members, asking them for their ideology. 183 reported back as liberal to some degree. Seven identified as conservative to some degree, or about 3%. Repeat those numbers. 236 faculty members at Harvard, 183 liberals, seven conservatives. So let me ask you this question, Stephen Pinker. Why would I be optimistic if I were reporting to work every day in a place where I'm outnumbered ideologically, intellectually, 26 to 1? Yes, a couple of things. First of all, it is, it's a misunderstanding of my book, Enlightenment Now and Better Angels of Our Nature on the Decline of Violence, that these are briefs for optimism. I don't use the word optimism in the title of either one. I'm just calling attention to data that most people are completely unaware of, namely that rates of violence have, on average, come down. Now, we can, what that means for the future can be debated. But it is a fact that most people are unaware of simply because they base their understanding of the world on headlines rather than on data. There'll always be enough headlines to uh, make it seem as if the world is falling apart. If that's how you base your view of the world, it, it might be out of whack with reality, that the data tell a different story. 
But going back to, so, so it's not a brief for optimism, it's brief for uh, what Hans Rosen calls factfulness, namely your assessment of how far we've come should just be based on the, uh, the trends and not the anecdotes or, or incidents. But I, I agree that actually it is a problem for academia that, that there is a, uh, there's decreasing viewpoint diversity. There is, uh, if you want to be even more pessimistic, if you look at the age profile of conservatives, it would probably include my colleague Harvey Mansfield, who is a nonagenarian. Uh, a number of other conservatives like Ruth Weiss have uh, retired. And, uh, and there's just no question that this, at least within the, 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 uh, the, the microcosm of the university, this is cause for concern. As um, uh, the, uh, Harvey Silverglade, the civil libertarian, uh, points out in a uh, modern university, diversity means people who look different but think alike. And I, I agree, this is not a good thing. I'm a member of Heterodox Academy, which is uh, designed to promote uh, a diversity of viewpoints to, in, on, in uh, the university world. To just note that this is a, uh, an asset, it's a virtue. The more we disagree, the greater the chance that one of us might be right. I think the phenomenon to go a step deeper is, uh, too bad the survey didn't ask for more. The, the very young are the very woke, the progressives the sort of middle-aged Woodstock at generation liberals. It would have been interesting to see that transition and not so much the transition of political viewpoint uh, as the increasing amount of intolerance from, from one side of the political viewpoint. Uh, indeed, there is no, we should avoid stereotyping an entire generation or in fact, any generation since uh, we baby boomers uh, uh, got the whole thing started, as I, as I like to say, Billy Joel was wrong, we did start the fire. And I do remember back from when I was an undergraduate, a, a student activist yelling over a, a megaphone, fascists do not have the right to speak. I reproduce a poster from a talk given by my colleague E.O. Wilson that advised students to bring noisemakers. And this is, these were before the millennials were born. And so the seeds were planted by the baby boomers. And indeed, it's the baby boomers who are now the deans and the provosts and the senior bureaucrats who are indulging this uh, clamping down on free speech. Conversely, there I have been impressed listening to a number of my students and how they resent being told to shut up by their peers. And there is a, 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 a fair groundswell toward free speech and viewpoint diversity in Generation Z. Uh, although it is true that statistically, there is greater intolerance in younger cohorts than older ones. And that is not a good sign for the future, I agree. That sounds like one of the very few trends that hasn't been going in a good direction. I wanted to kind of tease out a little bit more what you think has happened, because it's true that there was the seeds were planted by the baby boomers. On the other hand, if you could take a time machine and go back to late 60s or early 70s Harvard, I sense that the atmosphere would be very different from, from Harvard or any of the other major universities today. Now, you, you must be coming up for 20 years uh, in your uh, Harvard position. I remember when we were uh, colleagues, uh, I think the proportion or the number of conservatives declined about 10% when I left. But it was changing. It was changing, Steve. I remember that last yeah. year I taught, which must have been 2015, 2016, a new chill in the classroom. And it was a strange kind of thing. One sense that people felt inhibited in discussion. 
that the students felt inhibited by one another as much as by anything that the professor might think. And that was new to me. Uh, and it contrasted markedly with what I had encountered when I had first been teaching at Harvard, which must have been 2004 or 2006 or thereabouts. So what happened, do you think? And, and have you noticed that that same relatively recent change? I mean, this is what the heterodox academy folks like John Haidt think, that something quite recently has changed that distinguishes Generation Z's experience from the baby boomers in the late 60s. Well, the, the, the change has been most dramatic since last June. Uh, if, and you can quantify it. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, of which I'm, uh, I'm an advisor, tracks the number of cases brought to their attention of professors or students whose rights to free speech have been infringed upon. And they noticed a big spike in the, uh, the kind of the great awakening following the uh, George Floyd murder last, uh, late last spring. But it had been getting worse before then. And of course, it isn't just universities. It's the, it's, it's the New York Times, it's uh, CNN, it's uh, a lot of corporations. It's, it, it probably got a big push from currents that were in the universities back when we were students. The uh, critical theory of the Frankfurt School, which kind of justified intellectual repression as a part of, uh, as a driver of, of, uh, of progress. Uh, but it, uh, uh, it, I don't know if a historian, good historian of ideas has yet traced how this very strange takeover gathered momentum and, and, uh, and acquired its current hegemony, whether it's that uh, contra the statement attributed to Henry Kissinger that academic battles are fierce because so little is at stake, Perhaps a lot is at stake because the elites are populated by graduates of universities, often by graduates of the, the liberal arts um, programs where they're the ones who, instead of going into business or the military or uh, technology, they tend to uh, achieve positions of institutional power, they seek them, and maybe they carry with them some of the academic doctrines that seemed rather recherche 30 or 40 years ago, but have, have become the, uh, our intellectual currency. Um, now, so there could be that flow of intellectual influence from universities, which we may have underestimated. There could be demographic trends where, because the country has been self-segregating into um, urban and coastal uh, enclaves and leaving behind a more conservative um, uh, heartland that more and more, there's more and more homophily. People are, are rubbing shoulders with people just like them. And that has increased polarization on both sides. But I can't claim to understand it, but it is a major phenomenon. And uh, I really would like to understand it. It's a good thing we have a psychologist or, or <laughs> with us. Because this seems like, from an outsider's, that's what I wanted to interview about you about. There is a it's, it's it's a good it's a good thing if he's a, if he doesn't start analyzing us. That, that's, that's a good. Thing. <laughs> well, there is a social psychologist HR. There is a social psychology element here. Oh, um, absolutely, yeah. Rather than than analyze it as an intellectual movement, where you'd have to take it, it it's. You referred to this in an earlier discussion we had as as a tribal movement, almost religious, where you stand up and say clearly ridiculous things in order to signal your membership in the tribe. 
and that helps this tribe to take over the institutions of civil society. You mentioned many, I would add nonprofits, government agencies, the alphabet soup of uh, um, international agencies, uh, which, which now, yes, it, it turned from climate to, uh, to racial theories last June, and, and it'll probably move on. But uh, help us to think of it, you know, from what you know of a social psychological phenomenon, or Neil, Neil brought us to during, during the great uh, plagues, there were sort of religious uh, movements that, that sounded very similar and also had a similar thing of um, we're going to go out and, and get rid of the heathen and the unbelievers in, uh, as well. So does, that, does your psychology training give you some insights onto this movement uh, viewed as such, not, not so much as an intellectual? Yeah, um, there, there's a, uh, uh, what we've come to value as uh, enlightenment liberal ideals, um, due process, democracy, freedom of speech, viewpoint diversity are deeply unintuitive. We naturally fall back on tribalism, on sectarianism, on um, what the, the general family of biases sometimes called the my side bias, kind of self-explanatory, where you assume that people in your tribe have the truth and that others are um, stupid or evil or both. And to be reminded, well, yeah, everyone has always thought that they're right, and that uh, that's why we have mechanisms of uh, open deliberation and free speech and due process. It's kind of a lesson that every generation has to be learned, and, uh, and to 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 clamp down on these tendencies toward tribalism, toward uh, uh, puritanism, namely to to uh, value ideological purity as a virtue and to consider disagreement to be a form of heresy, authoritarianism to assume that uh, there are authorities with a, uh, a vision of the truth whom we ought to, to follow. All of these are what our modern institutions uh, kind of learned are not very good ways of running human affairs, at least the scale of a whole society, but we really do have to relearn them. And, I, and we have been kind of remiss at, at uh, repressing these more primitive sides of, of our uh, social nature. HR, HR, you come from three and a half decades of public service, wearing a uniform or working in the White House. How, how do you make sense of campus life? <laughs> well, I'd like to ask Stephen about, about uh, an aspect of it involving identity politics. And uh, Stephen, I really like the, the, the way that you've pointed out that, that identity politics is, you know, is really a, a, a form of, of bigotry because it assumes that everyone's views conform to their identity category. So I'd like to tell you that you know, as a as a bald, washed up general, I'll speak for my you know for my identity group, and and just I'd really be interested to know if you begin, are you beginning to see a backlash against this? Can you start helping us think about about the future of campus life? I don't I don't think students are naturally predisposed toward wanting to be fed a certain orthodoxy or toward wanting to be categorized uh, under the belief that. You know that that, uh, that that their their character is determined, that their ability is determined by identity category. Do, do you see do you see uh, an optimistic? Uh, do you have an optimistic view of the future on cam of campus life? And and uh, and what are your indicators uh, that you see that there's a nascent backlash? Not just campus life, but life in civil society in America, which is uh, the, the larger. Right. Yeah, um, there is pushback to, uh, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to call it optimism yet, 
but it is not steamrollering over everything uh, unopposed. I think one of the reasons that it has taken over so quickly is that the people who do hold positions of responsibility <clears throat> have just never themselves given any thought to why we have principles like, like free speech and due process. They've grown up with it, it's the air they breathe, and then the first time they get challenged by a woke mob saying, if you don't do what we say, we're gonna call you uh, racist or transphobic, they immediately fold because they're, they're kind of defenseless. They've never really thought through why we have uh, principles like empirical testability of social hypotheses and, 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 and all the rest. And so they take the path of least resistance. They wanna make the pain go away. It often costs them very little, if anything, to capitulate to the demands of, of, of the, uh, the woke mobs. And they just aren't equipped with the arguments as to why you know, if you call for due process, you shouldn't be canceled. Now there, uh, and, and in order to push back so that uh, a, a provost say, doesn't simply have pressure coming from uh, a woke mob, but has pressure coming from another direction. So at least he or she has to give it some thought and maybe go back to the principles of why it's okay for people to, to disagree in public. There are uh, uh, at least five organizations Three of them formed just in the last couple of months. There's Counterweight in the, from the UK. There's uh, FAIR, I, I believe you had Barry Weiss on the show and she's one of the, the uh, co-founders. There's the Academic Freedom Alliance. In addition, in the UK, there's the Free Speech Union. Before that, there was uh, FIRE, which has uh, kind of the legal muscle to use the First Amendment or universities' own free speech policies to push back in the legal arena. There's Heterodox Academy. So with at least six organizations, it would be premature to say that they're going to roll back the tide, but at least there's something pushing in the other direction. And that could be critical for these, um, people call the university administrators, administrators spineless, and they, they are. But I think they're also um, you know, innocent. Uh, they have, are, have not been exposed to the decades of jurisprudence on uh, what is protected speech, why it should be protected, why free speech was essential for anti-war movements, for the abolitionist movement, why it was, it's a really good thing that we're committed to free speech. That's all forgotten. And so they are worried about getting accused of racist. They'll say, I'll do whatever I can so that I'm not accused of being a racist and have no idea as to why that capitulation can compromise something that's truly important. Steve, let me come at this as the historian. It seems to me that uh, in your recent books that have focused on the material Im improvements in life, which as you rightly say, uh, most people underestimate. Uh, there's a kind of puzzle that, that we should try to examine. Could it be that these unhealthy trends in the direction of illiberalism, uh, this uh, strange revulsion against free speech, that, that in fact this trend has its roots in precisely the material improvements that you document uh, in Enlightenment Now and in The Better Angels of Our Nature? Could, could we think of this... And it may be that this argument relates to the 
John Haight, Greg Lukianoff argument, that, that the generation that has come into this extraordinarily comfortable world with significantly reduced risk of, of war, homicide, etc., is a fragile generation. I, I, I wasn't wholly persuaded by the coddling of the American mind, uh, which argues that there's a kind of generational problem that can be attributed to parenting strategies. I wasn't wholly persuaded of this. I think I prefer the notion that if you grow up in a world of extreme comfort by historical standards, with all your rights entirely guaranteed to the point that you take them for granted, you're actually liable to the totalitarian temptation to, to police speech and, and cast these and cast these benefits aside, not understanding what they're worth. Would that be a plausible hypothesis based on, on your work, actually? Uh, yeah, and I, as much as I <clears throat> admire John Haidt, I think he's brilliant, and Greg Lukianoff, I think he's uh, also brilliant and, and uh, courageous. I too wasn't exactly persuaded by by, by that hypothesis. I think there's a uh, because when there's an attack by the social justice warriors, they don't seem like wounded snow, you know, wounded war, wounded victims. They don't act like snowflakes. They are uh, highly aggressive. And I think what we have instead is a um, what the sociologists Jason Manning and Bradley Campbell call a culture of victimhood, where the victimhood, it, it doesn't really weaken them or wound them, uh, but it is a pretext for them to uh, assert power. Campbell and Manning suggest that historically, there's been a transition from a culture of honor, the kind of manly virtue that consists of retaliating against any affront or insult, and uh, Neil, you, I, I see just uh, about an hour ago, you wrote about that in the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Scottish uh, uh, temperament would put the Corleones to shame in the culture of honor. Yeah, and my enemies should take note. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I wrote about in The Better Angels about the transition in many Western uh, societies to a, a culture of dignity. And this is a, a long and slow process from the Middle Ages where to achieve uh, uh, manly status, you no longer would, would um, lash out if you're insulted, but quite the contrary, you show the ability to master, to control your emotions, to respond with dignity rather than uh, with, with anger. What Campbell and Manning suggest is that we're seeing the emergence of a third culture, the culture of victimhood, where your claim to status and eminence comes from being a victim. And that this is enabled by an entire bureaucracy, particularly within the universities, that parlays claims of victimhood into, uh, uh, in, into power advantages. Namely, the Dean for Equity and Inclusion can stomp on whoever you don't like if you accuse them of having victimized you. And you, and, cat and you categorize people into victims or oppressors, I think, Stephen. I mean, I, I, I think about this problem as, as really supplanting heroism with victimhood. And of course, what that does is it, it undervalues the degree to which we do have agency. What I like about your work is that you, you reinforce the, the, the idea that we can work together to build a better future for generations to come. We do have agency. And what I see today is this sort of interaction that you and Neil are describing between identity politics on one extreme and various forms of bigotry and racism on the other side. They draw strength from each other. 
and create these centripetal forces that are spinning us apart from one another. Would you agree with that assessment? And what can be done to reinforce, as you do in your writing, our common humanity and bring people back together for meaningful, respectful discussions and a restoration of empathy, which you argue for as well? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. And there is, uh, going back to kind of the intellectual roots of the Great Awakening, a lot of it does come from a, a very different vision than what I loosely consider to be the ideals of the Enlightenment, namely problems are inevitable, but human ingenuity deployed in the service of solving problems can uh, eke out increments of progress. Um, solutions create new problems, so it's a uh, constant process, but we can solve problems if we um, uh, decide to focus our energies that way. The view from uh, of, of, of wokeness inherited from the critical theory of the Frankfurt School of Marcuse and, uh, and Adorno and Horkheimer is um, a kind of descendant of Marxism that says history is a struggle. It's not solving problems. It's a zero-sum competition. Uh, the, in contrast to classical Marxism, where it was all about economic classes, now they are races or, or sexual identities or, or genders. And that progress consists of wresting power from one group uh, and, and uh, handing it to the other. But that there can't be overall improvement. There can just be reallocation. And, and, so the, just, and the tearing down of these power structures is, is sort of the end, right? Yeah. See, in, in that sense, this is, I, I think, starting in the 60s and wokeness is, is too narrow. This We go back to the 30s, to the Marxists, where it, it was many of the same uh, phenomena we saw, and also a claim of victimhood of the workers at the expense of the capitalists is, is the excuse to seize power by any means. Look internationally, uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of the things going wrong in the Islamic world come from a sense of we're the victims and therefore we have to blow things up. But I, I want to go, go back to the, the whole progress question, because I think we're taking for granted that all of our listeners have, have read all of your books. And um, I want to give you a little bit of a chance to advertise, but also to ask it as a question. Um, I'll summarize, you know, as, as an economist, how I see it. It is a fact that we live in the most prosperous society ever. Um, in, in economics, people look back to the 1950s as a wonderful, glorious age. Sorry, the average American is at least five and probably more like seven times better off than they were in the 1950s. Health has gotten better. Rates of violence have gone, I mean, except for some parts of the inner city, um, uh, in, you know, rates of violence have gone tremendous. And down around the world, you know, war just doesn't come as often as it used to. Um, life is longer. The environment is better. We live in this in this wonderful world. And yet there's this paradox that our politics demands constant crisis. Our politics seems to demand a, a, a narrative of everything is falling apart. I, I was amused, for example, our, our new president announced that um, uh, we are in the middle of three crises, the climate crisis, the racial crisis, and the uh, pandemic crisis. I don't think any of them counts as a crisis, an actual crisis. The third is a, a public health challenge of, uh, by historical standards, minor order. But we seem to need this, our politics seems to want this narrative of everything is, 
not just in danger. We're, we're conservatives, so everything's in danger of going to hell in the handbasket. But uh, but a uh, a narrative of everything actually has gone to hell in a handbasket. The climate is actually today burning. Uh, our our racial situations, far rather than being better than at any time in our history, is actually you know worse than it was when 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 actual slaves were coming off ships in chains. So so as having. You, you can say more on how wonderful things are, but also on this interesting paradox between the facts and, and the necessary political narrative. Yeah. Um, so yes, by, by, by most indicators, we really are uh, better off. There are some where, where, we're, where we're worse off. I mean, I would say that uh, greenhouse gas emissions are a, a real problem. The pandemic unquestionably was a problem, although thanks to science, we are going to eliminate it with a fraction of the death toll of previous pandemics. And pandemics are, are just a fact of, of not only of human life, they're just a fact of life. Uh, you know, we're big, yummy hunks of meat from the point of view of a germ, and it's natural that they would evolve to you know, gnaw at us from the inside. We always had the defense of our immune system. Now we have another defense of uh, human-made vaccines, and we're going to vanquish this a lot uh, quicker than, say, the, uh, the, the uh, Spanish flu. But there's no question that the pandemic was a, a true, um, you know, statistically, as opposed to anecdotally driven, it, it was you know, unquestionably a, uh, a threat. It, um, you know, 350,000 extra deaths in a year. I don't mean to minimize that, but but there is a narrative, but compared to the Black Death, the Spanish flu, the regular deaths every summer, uh, you know, we, we uh, th this was small, but the larger case that there's this there's this nostalgia for everything was wonderful in the past that it's falling apart, which is so completely at odds with the facts. Well, yes, the best, as they say, the best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. And uh, so the, why is there such a discrepancy between the, uh, the, the facts of progress and people's perception? One reason is uh, the one that I alluded to at the beginning, namely that uh, because news is uh, a highly non-random sample of the worst things that happen in the world in any given day, partly because um, most events are, um, are are for the worse. Anything that happens suddenly is probably um, damage. No, I, I, I want to fight with you. Those are choices. The news could be written, uh, you know, new vaccine. In that you, you read yeah. Popular Mechanics or Science Today or whatever. There's there's nothing but good news. You, there's a choice to go look for bad news. There's a, a and that's. I, I was hoping you'd put your psychologist hat on. Yeah. And tell us why we choose this to whose, well, I may be putting an economist that on, to whose use is it to choose this narrative? Well, yeah, so I, I was going to get, I, I'm, I, I don't disagree with what you said. On top of this negativity bias, there is just a natural bias in recording events rather than trends. Uh, good things don't happen in a day. They creep up a few percentage points a year and they compound. As Max Rosa put it, also an economist, the headlines, the papers could have had the headline, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 30 years, but they never ran that headline. And so a billion and a quarter people escaped from extreme poverty and no one knows about it. So that's a, that's a built-in bias. That's just inherent in news. And I've often thought that if, if news outlets were responsible, they would take a page from the, the sports and business pages and they would run continuous, like a dashboard, continually updated 
data on things like crime rate and greenhouse gas emissions and extreme poverty, uh, war deaths. And so we would see how the needle moves and in particular to see what our policies did to it. Um, but on, on top of that natural bias, I, I, I do agree that there is a tendency to accentuate the negative. Partly there is a negativity bias in human psychology in general. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky called it the uh, called it loss aversion. We're much more sensitive to decrements in our fortune than to equal size increments. Uh, but there's also a, 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 but as you note, know, it's not that every outlet has it because Popular Mechanics does have a uh, presumably by design a more popular spin. I think you also see in kind of intellectual elites a tendency toward negativity because it's not. Generally, it's not them, it's not they who are responsible for the improvements. Uh, they, it's, it's not professors of sociology who get clean water through the pipes or develop the vaccines or the, or the uh, successful police forces or even the, the, uh, the peace treaties. And so there's a the kind of inter-elite jealousy and, and rivalry as to who deserves credit for what goes right. And since the intellectuals can't claim, themselves can't claim credit. The whole world is making choices without consulting them. For at least a, a century, maybe 150 years, there has been a, a very strong uh, tendency toward decline among intellectual elites. Uh, Arthur Herman has a book called The, the uh, Idea of Decline in Western Civilization, who documents starting with, with uh, Nietzsche and Heidegger and Sartre and all of the all-stars of the intellectual firmament uh, tend to be um, uh, highly pessimistic. They, they, uh, the world is coming, has been coming to an end for a very long time. And Neil, I see Neil is frowning because I know that you're, uh, I, I just learned that your next book is called Doom. <laughs> I'm, also, I'm also gonna say, Stephen, you may, have, you may explain some of the dynamics on Goodfellows as well. You know, I'm 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 the optimist, and I'm I am I'm of the academy, I guess now, but have not been across my, across my career, and I'm the one who tends to be on the optimist side uh, of, of our discussions. Stephen, well, Stephen's gonna, let me let me pose a question. Let me pose a question, okay. Stephen. I'm sorry, Neil. Um, I've I've not known you as long as Neil, Stephen, uh, or John. Um, I admire your work as does HR. Uh, you seem to make perfect sense. Lord knows you have good taste being in Cape Cod instead of Cambridge. Um, so the question, Stephen, is when I see the Chronicle of Higher Education with the headline, why do people love to hate Stephen Pinker? Why would anybody want to hate you? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a you know, mild-mannered Canadian. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, it's because he has such good hair. I think maybe maybe there's a little bit of jealousy in that. <laughs> but I, I think this is a good this is a good chance to segue into why you came under attack and you survived your attack. So maybe there's a there's a tale on how to write out these sort of things, Stephen. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly didn't apologize. I had this was I think in reference to a petition that circulated last summer by a number of um, uh, junior linguists asking that the Linguistic Society of America rescind my fellow status, which the uh, association didn't, did not accept, based, based on some tweets uh, in which I cited some data on, on police shootings and on uh, rampage killings, and various other uh, heresies and, and, uh, and sins. Uh, the, um, yeah, I, I don't consider, I'm certainly not a flamethrower. I don't court uh, controversy. I don't. Um, I, I manage my controversy portfolio uh, carefully. I don't opine, opine on every view that I that I have. 
But nonetheless, it doesn't take much to be a, an academic uh, heretic today, simply because there is, I think there is a congealing orthodoxy. And just to take the view of a kind of what I think of as an open-minded social scientist, what's the evidence for, for this position? Uh, do we get to challenge it? Can can uh, identify you as a uh, a contrarian, if not if not a heretic. Um, I, I like to say that uh, academia is at the the, the left pole, the uh, hypothetical location from which all directions are right. Uh, just as like when you're at the North Pole, all directions are south. Academia has uh, has staked out the the, uh, the the left pole. So, what is your advice when someone, if you're an academic and you see the the lit torches coming your way, what do you do? Well, I don't I don't know how well this advice will uh, can, can be exported. But certainly to stand your ground, to uh, to do what academics ought to do, and then we state your strongest possible case. Now that won't always work because there are you know, irrational forces towards sectarianism and tribalism. But at least for the sector that uh, has just never even thought about the issues before, and, and most people haven't thought about most issues, they they kind of uh, inherit a set of values may not be aware of the history of ideas behind them. And sometimes it can just be uh, eye-opening to be reminded of the, you know, why, why we have to look at data, why we can't just ratify a consensus, why we have to have diverse viewpoints. And just to continually make that uh, is not guaranteed protection, but it will work with some people. I think one of the stories of the last couple of years is that previously the council mob came for conservatives, but now it comes for liberals. Um, oh, and I consider you a liberal. Fa favorite story of the week for me so far was the American Humanist Association canceling Richard Dawkins, uh, withdrawing the 1996 Humanist of the Year award. And it strikes me that there's an almost Monty Python-esque quality about the American Humanist Association pronouncing Richard Dawkins a heretic for a tweet that he wrote uh, in which he questioned whether uh, you could change your race as easily as you could change your, your gender. So let's think a little bit about what that means. G.K. Chesterton, a great conservative thinker, said the problem with atheism is not that men believe in nothing, it's that they'll believe in anything. And I wonder if part of the, the problem for a scholar like you, Steve, is that, that liberalism turns out to be a rather fragile center ground to hold at the moment. Uh, and, and in a way that the, the struggle Heterodox Academy has is to try to kind of hold this, this center ground when there really is no ground to the right anymore because there is more or less an extinction event for conservative academia and everything is to the left of you. So I wonder if you're still going to be a liberal, I don't know, 10 years from now. At some point, I think you liberals have to accept that the conservatives may have had a point about liberalism, that it's fundamentally self-liquidating as an ideology. Well, this is one of the reasons that one of the reasons I wrote Enlightenment Now is to kind of lay out a coherent a coherent agenda for um, you know, liberalism in the small L sense and in the classic liberalism sense. That is, it can't just be, well, we, we hate conservatives. Um, it's, uh, the, the positive agenda has to be as 
humans as living things were subject to all kinds of uh, insults from the cosmos, from this, you know, entropy, disease organisms, um, overall decay. We are a cognitive species. We can figure out how the world works to the extent we commit ourselves to human improvement, to making giving people longer and happier and healthier and more prosperous lives. And um, uh, using our collective ingenuity to solve problems, marginaling, marginalizing uh, the darker sides of human nature, like tribalism and magical thinking, um, then we, we can gradually succeed. The data on progress being uh, evidence. And therefore, there's something that we should you know, live for and work for and, and fight for, namely the, the project of the Enlightenment, improving human welfare. And the conservative critique of the Enlightenment, I mean, thinking here of someone like Thomas Carlyle, was that if all you are offering people in a, in a secular society is, is material betterment, don't be surprised if they uh, turn against you. Remember in Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov's dream in which the world goes absolutely mad uh, and in his nightmare, everybody believes that they have the truth and they all fall upon one another and terrible violence ensues. I remember when I first read that thinking, oh, God, what an extraordinary prophetic vision of where Europe would ultimately go, where Russia in particular would go. Um, so I, I guess if I asked myself the question, when did I kind of shift from, from being a classical liberal in the way that I think you are to being conservative, it was the realization that ultimately, if you give people material progress, as we've given young Americans on an unprecedented scale, they will thank you by becoming totalitarians because you've not given them anything to believe in. You've only given them uh, material improvement and condescension towards the past. You've told them uh, you, you are actually superior, morally superior to people in the past and all the values that they held dear. And I guess that the, the, the conclusion that I've come to is that it's not a sustainable position, that of the, the secular liberal. What you end up doing is just paving the way, uh, paving the way to the Bolsheviks or the Red Guards or some other uh, revolutionary movement that destroys all that you've tried to, to build. I, I would build on that by, by saying, I think we're making a mistake here by treating this as an intellectual movement as opposed to a political movement. I mean, what we face is a political slash religious movement that gives people meaning, uh, much like the Bolsheviks did, and who's nobody ever seized power by saying, you know what, GDP grew another percent this year, just like it has for the last 150 years. That's why you have to paint a, a story of imminent decline and crisis. That's your trouble with facts. There is a, a you, you said this so brilliantly last time, I'll say it again, that there's this political thing by which you people are forced to stand up and say ridiculous things to signal that they are part part of the mob. Well, when you stand up and say, here are the facts on the sources of the death rates of young African-American men by various sources, that set of facts directly contradicts an important narrative that people must stand up and say to be part of the club. Uh, most recently, <laughs> a hilarious one happened this morning. The city of East Palo Alto, which is sort of the poor part near the bay here is discussing its various problems. Um, guess what the top problem, according to the worthies, is for the city of East Palo Alto? Let's see. Crime, horrible schools, uh, uh, poor infrastructure, no jobs. Nope. The disparate impact of climate change coming to the city of East Palo Alto right now. Well, if you actually, if you, if you say facts in an intellectual way, you're, you're just running counter to this 
this narrative of deliberately fake, ridiculous things that one must stand up and say to be part of a political movement. So it's really the, the political movement invading universities, which one might have hoped were at some point as a space of intellectual life and invading the intellectual life of the country, the civil society that used to be where we had an intellectual life of the country. I, I think you're underestimating the sense of it being political as opposed to simply intellectual choices here. No, well, I, I agree that there, that it is a, a political movement. Um, yeah, I mean, in response to, to Neil, it's you know a lot of the improvement that we've seen is not just uh, GDP per capita, though it is that, and that there's nothing to sneeze at, but it is also equality in the in the liberal sense of 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 um, demolishing apartheid and Jim Crow, the uh, uh, arbitrary constraints that kept uh, women from full participation in, in civic and economic life, even earlier, the abolition of slavery. Steve, I'm not disagreeing with you about any of so it's that. It's not just material progress. No, no, my, also... my point is that all of that, all of those improvements, the creation of an open society, a free society, uh, ultimately doesn't endure because the people who inherit it take the freedoms for granted and because they have no anchoring beliefs, are easily seduced by the purveyors of an illiberal ideology that says, for example, we need to reintroduce segregation to make sure that we can effectively discriminate in favor of people of color. And it's that's the problem, that you, you bring about a free society, uh, you bring about an open society, but you have no way of preserving the loyalty of the younger generation to it. And this was the thing that I think came out from, from some of the research that Yasha Monk was doing recently on the, the indifference of young people or relative indifference of young people to democracy itself. The fact that wokeism is smuggling in deeply illiberal ideas, including even segregation. Uh, and nobody kind of seems to realize that this is the, the negation of all the things that you hold dear. Uh, so I'm kind of coming closer and closer to the, the, the 19th century critique of liberalism, that it would never be able to stop the slide into something far more revolutionary. I'm kind of also thinking here about Burke and the French Revolution. I feel as if there's something unstable about your enlightenment. Um, first of all, I don't think it's actually really the enlightenment, but let's, let's accept your terminology. There's something inherently unstable about your version of the enlightenment, which means that it can't endure because the people who benefit from it take it for granted and have no core values and no real loyalty to the open society. That appears to be the problem we face today. And it's why ultimately the most depressing prospect is that we create the most equal, the fairest, the most prosperous society, and young people turn away from fundamental freedom. You know, I, I want to fight with that. And, and then I'll, I'll lead to HR and, and both Stephen, because we're not even trying. We started this conversation with university administrators who had no idea why we have free speech. You just had some vague memory that it was a good idea. Um, successful societies educate their young. <laughs> they teach their young the history of their society. They teach their young the civil institutions of their society. They teach their young why we had a constitution, how that constitution came. It sometimes is a, an overly sugar-coated uh, you know, uh, 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 series of, uh, of wonderful uh, improvements, which a little bit of self-criticism is good, but we are not even trying. The education system doesn't teach civics. It doesn't teach American constitutional history. We, now the military does. 
Here's an example of an institution that, that thinks about its culture and, and that HR will tell us, how do you take this sort of, this, this, um, this woke society and, and then there are uh, soldiers who actually learn about what they're doing and they create a subculture. So to, to Neil's point, I, I think we have not really tried. I don't think this is inevitable. If a society cared and tried to educate and it's young to preserve here's what we are, who we are, and why we are you, young man or woman, take this forward, as opposed to just go do what you want. Uh, I, I think there might be a better chance. And I think the military is an example of how you preserve and maintain a culture, even in a very hostile world. Stephen, why don't you take your crack first at this uh, this idea that, that of Neil's that you know, has economic economic growth and liberty, yeah. has, it, you know, has it sown the seeds <laughs> of the demise of our democracy? And then maybe address John's point is, is that, you know, can, can we overcome, you know, Neil's uh, you know, grave concern about our future through leadership? I mean, what, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested in your answers to both of these questions. Well, yeah, Neil, I mean, you're, you're basing your argument on a, a conjecture of the worst thing that might happen, but um, so far democracies have not been that fragile. I mean, there's Weimar Germany, I suppose, but the Bolshevik revolution did not really emerge out of a stable liberal democracy, unless you consider the, the Kerensky uh, interim government, but it, it grew out of the uh, out of uh, autocracy. Um, the I agree that the illiberal currents in the uh, the greater opening are are uh, troublesome, uh, but unless they actually succeed in re-implementing a kind of Jim Crow, I think it's just premature to say that democracies carry the seeds of their own destruction. Given that very few democracies have actually collapsed, the uh, there has been some recession. So if you look at quantitative measures of democracy like VDEM, uh, the overall curve toward um, uh, increasing uh, democracy has shown a little bit of a backsliding. So, you know, we've, we've lost a decade or so, but uh, still the world is close to its peak in terms of the uh, overall level of democracy. And we haven't seen a, you know, a, a row of dominoes of one liberal democracy after another collapsing into Bolshevism. Now, again, I mean, I would not want to um, set the conditions where this, this, uh, this might happen. And if some of our you know, current um, uh, you know, uh, social justice warriors had their way and had no resistance, then maybe that would happen. But it hasn't happened yet. And I think it's premature to draw a conclusion of an, an inevitable historical progression for something that has never happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, democracy did disintegrate in most of Europe in the 20s and 30s. So we, we know what a collapse of democracy looks like. It, it's happened it's happened once before. But I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about democracy per se, which is just a kind of way of choosing governments. I think it's the fact that you, you actually have a threat to individual liberties uh, that, that really troubles me. And an indifference to, to individual liberties. And to go to, to John, you say we haven't really tried. Oh no, we've tried. We've tried to drive those ideas out of the curriculum. We've exactly. systematically <laughs> made sure that conservative intellectuals don't get jobs. We've made sure that there are only seven conservatives and one of them is in his 90s at Harvard. <laughs> so we've really tried to make sure that uh, the more conservative interpretation of liberty isn't available, isn't 
tools. And that just leaves the, the classical liberal version, which I'm arguing is not actually robust in the face of attacks from the left, because the problem is that it was mostly classical liberals who hired the leftists who are now tenured at these institutions. And it was mostly classical liberals who made sure that conservatives didn't get hired. And that is partly why I've lost faith in people who say, well, I'm a classical liberal, because where were you when those tenure decisions were getting taken? So, so I would add, um, in, if there's a, a danger that I see, uh, it's not so much the slide to Bolshevism, but the slide to sclerosis. Um, democracy seems to lead to ever higher taxes, ever higher regulation, uh, ever less competition, crony capitalism, if you will. And that's in some sense what's happened in the university. A very uncompetitive uh, thing was taken over by, by a crowd that then had an ideological thing going on. And that, you know, we see that in, in Western Europe. So can capital, can and democracy, I hate to admit this, um, Milton Friedman was wrong. Uh, democracy and economic progress don't necessarily go terribly well hand in hand. Uh, democracies are responsive to interest groups, and the prime interest group is, is labor groups or business groups that want to monopolize markets and, and take things over. So uh, the slide, the growth has been good, we're better than we ever have been, but growth has been slowing down since the 1950s, and we are consciously shooting ourselves in the foot in, in very many ways. That the, the slide to sclerosis and cronyism seems to be the danger of the at least the advanced democracies. Hey, Stevie, can I can I ask you a question here? That I think maybe to pull a little bit of this together is, you know, if if the a true strength of a democracy is an educated populace, I think what we're talking about now is a real danger to a democracy is a is a populace that's indoctrinated with an, an orthodoxy that has that, that contains the seeds uh, of of liberalism's destruction and and our de democracy's uh, destruction. Do you have a prescription for the academy? We've talked many times on this show about the need for reform in the academy. Uh, what, do, do, what do you think can be done in a practical way to address to Neil's concerns of the, the squeezing out over time of alternative perspectives? What can be done to make sure that we're not you know, indoctrinating our young people with an orthodoxy that contains the seeds of illiberalism? Yeah, I think that is the challenge of, of, um, of the academy. I agree with John that we have not done a good job of reminding generations of students to say nothing of our peers of the the value of um, free speech open open um, uh, inquiry due process all of the things that it took many centuries to to uh, achieve I think a lot of the pressure has to go toward the university administrators the um, uh, not just the bureaucrats but the provosts and the deans and the presidents where all the pressures come from one direction they, uh, there's a, a, it's an unenviable position because there are a lot of things that can go wrong and it's not easy to get things to go right. But there have to be, they have to get pushback from the defenders of, of, um, uh, of, of classical liberalism um, so that they, the path of least resistance is not just capitulating to the social justice war, uh, warriors. We have to uh, at least you know, not knowing how to plot a, a counter-revolution, but uh, one thing that we academics are kind of ought to be good at doing, one of the things we're paid to be doing, is is by pressing arguments, by by pushing back, by uh, by by challenging the the orthodoxy, 
through organizations like Heterodox Academy and the and and Fair and and uh, Counterweight, uh, but to 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 push back and to uh, also reinforce the history of lynch mobs, of slides into autocracy, of mob justice, of uh, pogroms, of, of racial segregation, to remind people of why these hard fought uh, victories, all the, why these institutions ought to be savored and cherished. Because people do forget. Uh, and, and I think that's a danger more than just prosperity but enjoying the, the fruits of a liberal democracy, you can forget why those institutions uh, were justified in their day and need to be re-justified today. I would add to that the positive history of the great promise of America as, as manifested in, the, in our declaration and in the constitution and to, to, to really view the revolution uh, as, you know, as, as you know, a war of independence that enshrined our country uh, in, enshrined in our country values and principles that ultimately made the institution of slavery untenable rather than, you know, this kind of warped perspective of the revolution these days that has gained widespread acceptance that it was, it was fought to preserve slavery. And, and then, of course, to recognize the, the failures of, you know, of, of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, but then also you acknowledge the dismantlement of de facto segregation and inequality of opportunity during the civil rights movement. And of course, Stephen, you're recognizing there's still more work to be done. But I think, you know, your overall narrative of, of optimism, of, of recognizing the great promise of America, I think is really important to regain our self-respect, which is Richard Rorty pointed out, is a necessary ingredient for self-improvement for individuals as well as for nations. I just want to add a cheer what you said. The answer, and I'll put on HR mode, <laughs> the answer has to be building alternative institutions. Uh, we, we're in the situation where there's many people who understand how crazy things are, but they are scared to speak because alone, who are you against the mob? But if you have institutional support, people who will come to your help, people who will, help, who will together help assemble the facts of the counter argument, uh, that I think is, is, is the hope for not just universities, but the larger institutions of civil society, the many people I talk to inside government agencies who are appalled at what's going on with their agencies and, and scared to speak out. So, Stephen, we have just a couple of minutes left on the show, so I'd like to ask you one last question. I'd like to each of the good fellows to weigh on this, too. The Chicago Tribune recently wrote an editorial. The headline was, The Best Time to Be Alive is Now. So, Stephen, can you briefly tell us why this is the best time to be alive uh, is now? And I'd like each of the good fellows to build on Stephen's answer. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say now in the sense of this week, because we're not over the pandemic, and the pandemic was unquestionably uh, a step backwards. It was just a bad thing, and bad things do happen. But you know, rewind to just before the pandemic, it was pretty close. Uh, the, uh, certainly the rate of extreme poverty worldwide was lower than it ever has been and continuing to sink. The level of democracy, not at a peak, but it's pretty close to, to uh, a peak. The um, longevity, uh, very close to a peak worldwide, it is 72. It used to be more like 30. In affluent countries, it's in the low 80s. Uh, education rates of illiteracy are at all-time lows and again uh, rising, girls as well as boys. Um, just about any measure of human well-being when 
when uh, quantified has shown improvements in that we are at the peak. We've been knocked off a bit by the pandemic, but that 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 always happens. And uh, the past history of curves of human progress show a notch when there's a, an epidemic or a pandemic and then recovery. And, and that seems to be what we're about to witness. Okay, HR, one reason why this is the best time to be alive. Well, I think it's the best time because we've demonstrated a high degree of resilience. And I think as Neil's superb book shows when it, when, it, when everybody gets a chance to read it, they'll understand we never see these crises coming. And we've been through some traumas this year, maybe not crises as John has pointed out, but, but some real traumas. And, and I think that many of our institutions uh, have been put to the test and, and they came out okay. I mean, they were stretched, but they came out okay. So I guess the, the challenge is to, is to regain our confidence uh, and ensure that we remain resilient for the, for the next for the next doom that awaits us. I'll even go with with you know the pandemic is ending and and good things have come of it. Um, we have seen the incompetence of some of our institutions like the FDA and CDC, and I think reform will follow. We've invented mRNA vaccines and gotten them quickly approved. This this could be spectacular. The ability to quickly design vaccines to to end things that come, uh, and uh, doom hasn't come yet. I'll just emphasize the crucial uh, frame of mind that Stephen said. You look at the levels of things, not recent changes. Uh, people tend to say, "Oh, the '50s were great because they look at the growth rate of GDP," or "China China's doing great because they look at the growth rate." No. Look at where we are, the level of income, the level of uh, the, the fact of many people out, out of poverty, the level of life expectancy. These are the best years in 2 million or 200,000, whatever it is of, of our species uh, that we've ever had. And let's just not screw it up, Mr. Doom. <laughs> well, of course, the title of my book is, is ironical, uh, as, as good history should be. What's fascinating about human beings is that they constantly anticipate the end of the world. And I, I quote the wonderful Beyond the Fringe sketch, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, Jonathan Miller, now is the end, perish the world, long pause. Oh, well, never mind, lads. Same time again next week, we're bound to get a winner eventually. The, the, the title of the book is, is therefore a kind of play on our preoccupation with impending doom, and it never comes. Uh, the setbacks come, uh, and as we've been saying, COVID-19 has been a severe one, but to date it's killed 0.04% of the world's population, making it roughly three orders of magnitude smaller than the Black Death. The 1918-19 influenza just over a century ago, ago was 40 times worse in terms of its impact on global population. So uh, you'll be delighted to hear, viewers, that doom is not, as you might wrongly infer from the title, uh, a, a, a book that predicts the impending demise of, of, of mankind, quite the opposite. And indeed, I think the biggest risk to us is, is not that the climate is going to fry the planet, though we should certainly be concerned about that. I think the biggest risk to us is that we unwittingly succumb to totalitarianism, the ideology that probably killed the most people of any ideology in history uh, in the 20th century. Uh, so that's a brief synopsis and a trailer for our next show. Not one of you chose to sing the best of times from Lakaja Fall. I'm greatly disappointed. <laughs> well, that is a wrap for this episode of Goodfellows. Uh, don't despair. We'll be back next week with a new topic and a new conversation. By the way, keep those questions coming to us. You have a question for Neil, John, or HR, or all three of them, uh, write them in. Very simple to do so. You just go to our website, which is hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows and fire away. That website again, 
hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows. Stephen Pinker's book, uh, the full title is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. You can buy it on Amazon when you're also getting Neil's book, but title which is Doom, I think. Is that the title of your book, Neil? Doom? Say it one more time. It's our drinking game for this week, Doom. <laughs> Dr. Pinker also has a website, which is not surprisingly www.stephenpinker.com. Pinker spelled as you might expect, Stephen spelled with, this, uh, with the V, stephenpinker.com. And brave man that he is, he is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at S.A. Pinker. S.A. Pinker is his Twitter handle. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, our special guest today, Stephen Pinker, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.